You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Hello, this is a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Sperling, and today I'm joined by Adam Olson. Adam, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name's Adam Olson. Uh, my traditional Coast Salish name is Sahanup. Uh, born and raised on Chocolate Village uh, in the Saanich Territory. It's Sartlip First Nation uh, in the Saanich Territory, uh, basically the Saanich Peninsula and uh, throughout the Southern Gulf Islands, um, San Juan Islands, U.S. is where the territory is. I'm the member of the Legislative Assembly for Saanich North and the Islands and um, I proudly represent the Saanich Territory in the legislature and uh, part of the B.C. Green Caucus, elected first in 2017 and re-elected in 2020 and continuing to do the work. Just getting ready to get started here again in the in the legislature. So it's you know, going to be a busy spring. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you're always super busy every time I talk to you. And for full transparency, I'm on Provincial Council for the BC Greens. So there is a bit of a partisan bias at play here. I just want to be upfront about that before we get into things. Um, what we do normally when we're starting our podcast is we try to give the audience a sense of what the big issue is. Yeah. So when we say Indigenous issues, what are we talking about? Uh, as I've talked to you about previously, all of our topics that we're covering so far are fairly broad topics. So we're obviously not going to touch on everything, all you know, every Indigenous issue that exists in the world. Yeah. But just to give our audience a sense of what we mean by that, what are some big issues that Indigenous people face globally? Well, I mean, I'll just I'll start by backing up a little bit. Um, the colonial governing structures that we have set up have created these political parties. And um, uh, I think that they are outside of the big global issues of indigenous rights, indigenous um, well-being. Uh, they, in, in many respects, political parties are part of the problem, uh, to be honest. I, I think the they continue to perpetuate what is this colonial framework um, that of governance that has suppressed and has uh, really been dev devastating to Indigenous peoples globally? So I just wanted to, I think, identify that that there's um, there's a partisan bias in a colonial perspective, mm -hmm. uh, but when it comes to Indigenous issues uh, and decolonizing the conversation, political parties are part of what we need to discuss in that. Um, they are useful vehicles for the system of government that we have. Um, they're not particularly useful when it comes to addressing indigenous rights, uh, title, um, and colonization and, and, and the impacts of that. Uh, in fact, sometimes they are the obstacle that needs to be removed um, from the discussion. Uh, I think I want to just be clear that I can give you my perspective. Yep. And uh, there are a, a wide variety of different perspectives. Uh, about uh, where we are, how we got to here, and what we need in order to uh, achieve a social justice lens mm -hmm. uh, and true social justice. Um, but I think it's 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 true that across the globe, um, indigenous peoples and their cultures have been suppressed. They've been uh, eliminated. Um, they've been um, imprisoned. Uh, put in schools or like residential schools and day schools. Um, uh, and over, you know, the last uh, 150 years here in British Columbia, uh, we've experienced that. We, we've seen the impacts of that. Uh, we see the impacts uh, in our 
uh, First Nations communities uh, of that colonization. And, um, you know, really the work that we have in front of us right now is a process of understanding how it is that we govern this area known as British Columbia uh, in accordance with the laws of the laws that uh, our Supreme Court of Canada has has identified for us, and that is that, and Supreme Court of British Columbia, uh, that the way that we've been governing uh, this area has has not been um, reflective of of even what the laws of this country are. So, uh, and what they were rooted in. So, you know, I think um, the in general, the story for me is one of displacement, intentional displacement. Uh, from lands and territories, uh, desire to um, a desire to separate Indigenous people from their uh, territories, from the resources that they uh, developed and harvested, uh, in an effort to b- basically powered by greed, uh, corporate greed. Really, you know, and take a look at what the Hudson's Bay Company was and those the other companies that were operating on behalf of just the British Crown. Uh, it comes down to you know, these companies wanted access to those resources. And so they used all manner of, um, of, of ways to separate indigenous people from their territories and, um, then to extract at, in a very unsustainable way. Right. It was sort of a competition between European nations to see how much of the world they could take over. Yeah. The crowns had the European crowns empowered corporations mainly to do that work for them. Right. And so off they went for their ships and, when they came here to the BC coast, they saw, uh, you know, just an incredible amount of timber and an incredible, just you know, gold and 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 all sorts of other minerals and and um, set about over the last uh, seventeen or so decades in extracting it in such a, a crude and unsustainable way that we're left now with denuded landscapes and um, court cases that talk about. I like the Blueberry River case just recently, Yahe case, talk about um, the cumulative impacts of the decisions that have been made. Uh, one of the one of the hallmarks of the Crown governments that we have is uh, individual decisions are made independently of all of the other decisions that are being made around. So uh, when we talk about, um, I would take the Trans Mountain Pipeline for an example, they mitigate each river crossing, mitigate each environmental hazard and obstacle. Uh, nowhere in the process was the full impact of that pipeline considered. Just just each and every individual obstacle was mitigated. And so that's really, I think, a, a way to illustrate the, the, whole, the whole program was uh, one of, of one decision after another that has led us to situation that we face now. Right. And sort of coming back to the point that you made earlier about how political parties are often the problem, what motivated you to get involved in politics? Uh, well, it's a bit of a, a bit of a story. I got uh, nominated first to be on um, Sartlip Council back in the 2007 election. Both my sister and I were nominated. Um my wife, Emily, and I had a child coming, and uh, he was born one day after the election. And I kind of joked that, you know, learning how to be a parent and a politician at the same time is is not desirable. Um, so I thought, well, you know, the first thing I need to be responsible for is 
the child that we're bringing into this world. And so I stepped back from that election. My sister got elected in Sartlip and um, I stepped back. And then a couple of months later, the door started, uh, someone at the door was knocking and asking me if I'd ever thought about getting involved in municipal politics. And having grown up on an Indian reserve in, in, in the country and kind of understanding Indian Act policy with very, very little awareness of, uh, of uh, the local government act or of provincial laws and regulations, uh, I threw my hat in the ring and uh, ended up getting elected. And it was a crash course in property taxes and mill rates and infrastructure and zoning bylaws and, and tree cutting bylaws and you know bylaw making processes. I basically got elected because I was a community kid that grew up in in the community and everybody knew who I was. I was a soccer player and a baseball player and an umpire and you know I so you know I got elected for the reasons why people get elected and that's because you're a visible community person and and um then I had to go to go about doing the work and so I spent 5 years uh, at the council table doing doing the work and uh, after Elizabeth May got elected in Saanich Gulf Islands um and I did some work as a consultant on her campaign um the BC Green Party started to recruit me to see if I'd run for them and I don't know a decade later here I am wow <laughs> i didn't actually realize you'd been involved in politics for quite that long um, yeah it's a uh, 14 years now, I think. Yeah. 14. Incredible. Well, I ran in that 2013 election and came very close and then uh, ended up serving as the interim leader f for the BC Greens after Jane Sturck stepped down. Um, and then in 2015, Andrew Weaver became the leader. He, he um, ran unopposed. Uh, it was the only Green MLA at the time. So he became the leader and I then started to work on getting elected. And so that was the 2017 election was the second election that I ran in. Right. So you've been interim leader of the party twice now. Twice. Wow. Yeah. This is a question that comes up because often on the podcast we have, uh, or we see intersections between different groups that are marginalized. And I wonder, what have you noticed as far as how people with white passing privilege experience the world differently from those who are perceived to be or who are Indigenous? Uh, well, I, I certainly think, you know, my experience in life has is remarkably different from others. And I recognize that. Um, you know, I think I, there are some examples of where, you know, I've been in the workplace and heard what people really think because they had no idea. It wasn't something that I talked about, who I was and where I came from. Um, so, you know, it, it was, I think, an eye-opening experience for me when I was first getting in the workplace um, to really understand or see uh, what some people really think and hear what some people, and, it, and it's it's devastating that reality and that that understanding. I've always been instructed to be who I am, and uh, the way I look, and you know, that's just the way I look. That's just who I am. I'm a mixed heritage person, so it's not that I'm white passing. I'm I'm a mixed heritage person, mm -hmm. but I'm also a Saintage person. And I really identify with the place that I was raised. I really love the culture that, uh, that I've been uh, introduced to and that I've been, you know, the, the values that I've been taught 
by my grandparents and by my parents. Uh, and I really embrace who I am as Sahanap, as a Satanist person, someone who grew up in chocolate. And so, you know, we each have our own experiences in life. Um, and I think what's important is that we recognize the privileges that we have. Um, and we recognize the, um, that not everybody has those privileges. And then we do our best to work as hard as we can in order to ensure that we live in a just, compassionate, and loving society. And so for me, I have a role in my community to stand up and speak a truth to power, to speak about what I see, to speak about what I hear, uh, and to hold, and in my role as, an, as a provincial legislator, to hold government uh, to account. I was brought into the legislature in a good way by my by my family and uh, by our chief and 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 leaders in my family, and I I have a role to play. So, um, you know, certainly uh, my experience with this world uh, is not the same as that of my relatives. It's not the same as that maybe even of my siblings. Um, but uh, you know, I, I have a job to do, and uh, I don't get let how I appear in this world to get in the way of of what I know and and um, what I understand that needs to be done. Well, and it seems like you take those opportunities to speak up where in some situations you might be able to just stay silent and go, well, don't necessarily realize that I'm Indigenous and I can use that to my advantage as far as privilege goes. But you're saying, no, no, I'm going to make this uh, something that I talk about and uh, speak up for the people that need, need to have a voice in the legislature. Yeah, I, I, uh, I come from a, a, a very, <laughs> very vocal group, uh, family, um, people, very, you know, powerful people that, that, um, that's, that stand up and speak when need, when, when it needs to be done. And so I just follow their lead. I, I want to do the work in a good way. I want to do it in an honorable way. I don't want to be seen as making noise unnecessarily. So, you know, the noise that I make, it needs to be of value. Uh, and, you know, I, I think certainly in the legislature, uh, I've stood up and said things that have never been said in that place before. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that one of the things about diversity and making sure that our legislative assemblies reflect the population uh, in our province is that um, when you have, uh, when you're legislative assembly lacks in diversity it's you might have a bunch of compassionate people in there but they don't see the angles they don't see all of the different angles in 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 life you know if if there's if there's diversity in the legislature then what you can get is you can you can get a full account of how a, a policy or how a law is going to impact um all of the different diverse needs of people in our society. And so for me, you know, to, to think that our electoral system has been set up to advantage and to elect uh, certain types of people more often than others, uh, that to me is something that needs to change. And we will make better laws, more reflective laws of this diversity in our society when those people are the ones that are in the legislative assembly making those laws. So, you know, the, the fact that 
we had a child welfare bill that talked about um, uh, for Indigenous people changing uh, the, the laws to allow for Indigenous nations to be able to take control of their child welfare. And I talked about the impact that the deliberate laws uh, that were set by the federal government policy, the impact that that had on Indigenous women. And, you know, that, that really the result of that is missing and murdered Indigenous women. And that's the story that's being told. But there has been a deliberate attempt by our governments, and, and people are uncomfortable hearing this, but it is the truth that there has been a deliberate attempt to separate Indigenous women from their families and from their children. And so, you know, in the last session of the legislature, I stood up and gave an hour and 15-minute speech. I'm sure it was uncomfortable for some to listen to, but that's the place that that needs to be said because when we're creating a law and when we're changing the, the policy, um, we need to be very clear about what the impl implications of, of the current system that's been set up and what it is that we're changing it from. And so, you know, I'm in a position to be able to stand up and, and speak to that in a way that is legitimate. You know, I have um, family that have been implicated in the laws and, and affected and impacted by the laws. And so, um, you know, uh, I am in a position to be able to stand up and speak to it. I'm going to. I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to intentionally hurt people's feelings. But if people's feelings are hurt hearing the truth, then we need to make sure that we have a, a different reality because the one that uh, that we have right now has been intentionally set up to disadvantage specifically Indigenous women when it comes to this law mm -hmm. and many others, actually. Yeah, and that principled stance that you take is, is something I think is quite admirable and, and that idea that we need to have diversity within our elected offices that reflects the communities that they serve is something I'm also really passionate about. That's why... We've worked together uh, on EDI work within our party as well. Yeah. Um, it's not, and it, sorry to cut you off, yes. but it's not just the numbers. It's not a numbers game. Mm -hmm. You have to, like, it's not enough to say we had X number of Indigenous candidates. Mm -hmm. Answer the question. How many Indigenous candidates were run in ridings that that party intended to win? Right. Were right? given a chance. You know, that, that's exactly right. You could be running people in ridings that you know are never going to be a riding that, that your party is successful in. Mm -hmm. Those numbers don't count to me. Like, right. it has to be an honest attempt, not a dishonest attempt. And unfortunately, the way it's framed in a lot of the partisan politics is at its core dishonest. And I've seen that happen with other parties. That was part of why I ran with the BC Greens in 2017 was because... Uh, they reached out and said, do you want to run as a candidate, uh, knowing that I was trans? And I said, well, not if I'm going to be that token candidate. Um, and part of that is running in a riding where you're not going to get elected. And part of it is not having the support of the party. And there's all sorts of factors involved. And I've seen it play out, play out in other parties where I've seen mm -hmm. trans people just put on the roster, essentially, as a way of saying, look, we tick this diversity box. And it's not accomplishing what you really need to accomplish, which is getting those people elected, making sure that those voices are heard. Yeah, and for us, I mean, uh, for the party that I'm a part of, we have a big hill to climb. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of work to do on this. And it's, you know, it's not going to be, uh, you know, it, it often comes in the election as kind of like a gotcha moment. Um, and it shouldn't be leveraged as a gotcha moment either. It should be a kind of a, a sobering uh, reality of of all of the political institutions that are, 
you know, competing in a, in a democratic election. We've all done a terrible job of electing a, a representative cohort. We haven't. We, we have not elected a representative cohort. No. Um, there are many people that live in our society today who are not reflected in the Legislative Assembly right now. And we are not doing those groups a service. There is no way for us to be able to truly understand the world as those folks live it. We can, we can hear about it, but we, we've not experienced it. And so it's really important to be able to have someone stand up and say, you know, this is how I experience the world. Um, we were coming over here uh, we were talking about how the world is designed for able-bodied people. It is our design guidelines and our um, the way buildings are designed, the way architects design structures, the way communities and cities are designed, they're designed for an able-bodied person. Mm -hmm. And it's actually even more specific than that, but we just stick with able-bodied. We, we see... Uh, we see disabled parking spots that are you know, jammed up against a building that if, if you need to get out and you're in a wheelchair and you need to get out by a, a ramp, there's absolutely no way that you're going to be able to. We have, we have uh, folks that uh, live their life in a wheelchair that are driving around our neighborhoods, around and around and around our neighborhoods, 45 minutes late for our late for their doctor's appointment that took them weeks and weeks to get that they miss because we have not designed a community that is inclusive of them that we thought of actually we we thought of putting a disabled parking spot stall nearby but there's a tree right where the ramp comes out of the right so um you know i think that it comes down to we have People on in, in our in our society right now, a wealthy society, we have people in our society that are on income and disability support payments that are living ten thousand dollars below the poverty line, and we have a provincial and federal government that pretend to be progressive, and I say pretend to be progressive because a progressive federal and provincial government would not allow the the vulnerable people in our society, when it was raised to their attention, they would not excuse it. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't allow it to persist. They would say, how is it that we have a poverty line and we allow folks to persist $10,000 below that poverty line? That's the base minimum. Mm -hmm. And the support payments for, for folks that have been injured at work or you know are not able to... to um, you know, I, I just think... It just is so inexcusable that that's the situation. And, and so I think, you know, what our work needs to be is to elevate those voices in the legislative assembly so that, you know, the discomfort that maybe they feel around indigenous issues, that the people who are making the decisions are feeling that around the wide diversity of issues that they need to feel. It's then that we're going to be creating an inclusive society that is thoughtful about all the different angles that exist uh, out there and, and in the world. Yeah, and I mean, that's part of what we're trying to accomplish with this podcast is giving everyone an understanding of these different social issues and how they intersect, because it's interesting that you started talking about uh, disabilities since we just had a, a podcast on disabilities as well. So there's a lot of crossover in the, the kinds of conversations we have. Um, and to 
bring it back to um, Indigenous issues and <laughs> your uh, involvement on a provincial level. There's a couple uh, provincial issues that have been on my radar that relate to this topic. One of those is the coastal gas link pipeline. Mm-hmm. And we recently uh, saw some stories coming out about how the construction of the pipeline has been uh, damaging salmon spawning grounds and the company in charge has been receiving fines for environmental damages. So can you explain how that ties in with Indigenous issues as well? This, <laughs> we need several podcasts, a series <laughs> on this. Mm-hmm. I just actually, um, I, have a, I have a podcast. I'm just going to do a shameless oh, pitch here. Go for it. Uh, it's called the Public Circle Podcast. I interviewed or had a conversation with Hal Salem who's uh, the chief counselor of the Squamish Nation Council. And uh, we talked about the complexity of indigenous leadership, indigenous governance, historical, and then kind of the the colonial version through the Indian Act and chiefs and councils. I think one of the things that Hal Salem shared that I think needs to be repeated, and that is that the people who are governed are ultimately the ones that, that determine what the legitimate government is. And we see a, a wide variety of governance structures. Some of them um, exist long before uh, there were Europeans here, hereditary chiefs. And then there's elected chiefs and councils that uh, exist only because the Indian Act created that system. Uh, and both are embraced by the people in their communities. Uh, and so I think it really does come down to uh, one of the really important, most important clauses within the uh, Declaration Act that we passed in t- 2019, which is the right to self-determination. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the heart of that, that means that Indigenous people have the right to determine who they are, how they're governed, who governs them, and and how their territories are governed. What we have experienced over the last 170 years in British Columbia are federal and provincial governments that have been manipulating the governing structures uh, for their benefit. And so what we see in in, uh, the Wet'suwet'en territory as an example is we see um, Indian Act Indian Reserves and their elected chiefs and councils. And we also have um, what is and what we've seen is a fairly a very well-defined hereditary system that was involved in a landmark uh, court case, uh, Dalgamuch, uh, Gestewe. That was in the 19, uh, 1990s, that, that case. And it was one of the first cases where title was starting to be defined. Um, it wasn't defined in this case, but it said, look, it exists and there is that. The reason why I'm raising this is because the federal and provincial government understand and understood that there was a more complex governing structure than just simply um, the Indian Act chiefs and councils that were created. But yet they chose to sign agreements with those governments and provide economic benefits for those governments while ignoring what the Supreme Court of Canada court case had said when it came to the hereditary chiefs and councils and the, the surrounding territory. It's not for me to determine what the... Wet'suwet'en or the Gitsan, uh, the Squamish, um, the people and the governance structures that they have and that they uphold. That's for, you know, and, and when I embrace the right to self-determination, 
I embrace the right for um, my relatives to be able to choose a governing structure that reflects their needs, reflects their desires, and perhaps you know reflects 2023 or reflects a governing structure that ex has existed in the, that territory from time immemorial. That's their right to d define that. What I've been very critical of is when the provincial and federal governments know better, but yet they continue to act with a very colonial mindset, which is how do we get what we want, which is the money and the access to the resources. And when they manipulate uh, and, and complexify a situation willingly, uh, and then they, they uh, put, that, you know, put the communications out there that, that confuse it, that to me is what is, um, you know, really like unfortunate and the thing that I'm going to call out. And are you talking about like pitting the um, uh, elected councils and the hereditary chiefs against each other? Generally, what we've seen Indian Act policy do has been a process of turning uh, families, turning um, indigenous communities against themselves. Uh, absolutely. Um it is. Uh, it has been a process of picking winners and losers. It's been a process of separating um, children and parents. It's been a process of removing language. It's been a process of of tearing down uh, ancient institutions and replacing them with colonial institutions, uh, and then only talking with those colonial institutions, and then pretending like you're talking with the ancient institute. Mm -hmm. It has been a deliberate. Um, you know, I, I was just at a at an event and I was just talking about the environmental racism. I talked about it in the legislature, the environmental racism of of a federal and provincial government policy, federal policy when it comes to shellfish harvesting, you know, completely detaching indigenous people from their food harvesting areas is a is an act of, uh, you know, closing shellfish harvesting areas in perpetuity and not testing, but saying, no, those are poisonous. You can't harvest there. Um, or, you know, the, the forestry practices of the provincial government where they will spray pest species like salal, which has existed on the landscape here for as long as we can ever remember. It's an, an integral part of a healthy forest, our salal and all the, you know, 14 types of berries and mushrooms. Those are all part of, a, of, a, of an interconnected, biodiverse, rich ecosystem that Indigenous peoples have harvested. And now we've got the Ministry of Forests here in BC, spraying them and, and cutting them down because we want to advantage uh, tree harvesting. Those are environmental racism. Those are practices of environmental racism. And so, yes, the, the federal and provincial policy up until now has been deliberate and intentional in its, in its attempts to disrupt um, indigenous governance systems. Uh, back in, in uh, the early 20th century, we weren't allowed to practice our potlatching. We weren't allowed to practice sun dancing, uh, sun dances. Those are ceremonies that, um, you know, then actually only the people that were able to travel to secret locations to practice them were able to continue. So some families have those practices and some who weren't able to travel didn't. And it, it was, a, you know, it, it was deliberate and intentional. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that... Um, in the situation that I gave you, I mean, I think that it's it's more pertinent for for those folks to be speaking about their own business. But what we have seen and what I've witnessed from afar is the deliberate attempts to interrupt and disrupt and 
and to pit families against each other and to to make it a you know to you know Ellis Ross from the Heisla and myself on a on a morning radio show in Vancouver here arguing about policy that's exactly that, that is that is just a, a replication of what has been created time and time again mm-hmm. look at these indigenous people fight they they can't even get along with each other how are they ever going to why why would we get you know and, and this just inspires a a mistrust why would we give them money they can't even look at listen to them they're arguing on the radio so you know i think that it's it's um kind of the deliberate outcome of government policy, but it's also become part of our culture and our society, unfortunately. Right. And it seems like it's very challenging to separate our society from that because, or uh, at least in indigenous um, led areas where you have those conflicts between indigenous groups or between people within the, you know, one indigenous group or um, between hereditary chiefs and elected councils where that sort of colonial lens that's been applied and, and um, the way that government has tried to get what they want has created these systems that now we have to figure out how to dismantle. Like when you have, for instance, an elected council and hereditary chiefs and they can't agree and we're saying, okay, we, we believe in self-determination, you know, what, what does that look like as far as reconciliation works? Do we just avoid pushing any projects through those kinds of territories, regardless of whether Indigenous people want them or not, because we know that it's going to create conflict? Or do we say, here's an idea, it's in your court now, figure out what you want to do? Um, what, what does reconciliation look like when it comes to these very difficult situations to navigate? Well, I think um, it's not, you know, self-determination is not about, uh, I think it's about us stepping back. When I say us, I mean like the provincial government. That's a body that I represent. I'm a representative of it. Mm-hmm. Stepping back and um, putting the resources in place for those discussions to happen. Um, supporting initiatives within communities that create those houses of governance. There's a very beautiful new house that was built uh, in a neighboring village of mine, Sayout. Our relatives in Sayout built a beautiful new longhouse there. You know, in that longhouse, there's a lot of cultural work that gets done in there. And that's the historical governance of our community. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, even though there might be some, you know, kind of political differences or whatever between the, the neighboring nations, it's in those traditional homes that the governance plays out and that, that, it, that it happens. And it happens through ceremony. It happens through uh, societies that families are part of. And it happens in... Uh, birth and coming of age and death rituals that uh, families step up and support each other. I've just gone through uh, part of that in, in my family and, it's, and it starts to create some social hierarchy and order and and, and um, interactions with each other and good um, interactions with each other. And so, you know, I think ultimately the problem has been governments inserting themselves into the middle of the conversations, like they're going to be the ones that are going to solve the problem. They won't be. I won't be the one that solves the problem. I might be a part of a solution in my home territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, I think the, the message that needs to be, get out of the way. Right. Stop talking, right? Stop thinking that the government's going to be the one to solve the problem. Put the resources on the table so that the community has access to um, the capacity to be able to do the work that needs to be done. Uh, 
stop putting a timeline on it that is meaningless. You know, these relationships have existed for thousands of years. What's another two weeks? What's another month and a half? What's, you know, uh, yes, we have our timelines, but they are meaningless in the grand scheme of things. They are simply constructs that we've wrapped around um, the desire for us to do what we want to do. So, you know, when I like take a look at, um, you know, for example, what happened out at Ferry Creek was a, another example of this. Where this is another one I was going to ask you about. Yeah, 1,100 or 1,200 arrests, the single largest act of civil disobedience in the history of, of Canada, from, from what I understand, you know, more arrests anyway. And um, instead of getting out of the way and, you know, having options on the table, the provincial government almost, you know, assured that logging was the only context that they were going to have that conversation in. Mm -hmm. Even if the nation did want to have conservation or conserved areas, the only way that there was going to be any revenue for the community is if those trees fell. Otherwise, there, there's, there's nothing. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and, and instead of stepping back and understanding that this toxic environment was evolving, what do we have? We have the Minister of Indigenous Relations going in and renewing a forest and range consultation and revenue sharing agreement in the middle of that timeline and enshrining colonial and racist clauses into the, in, in the conversation. I raised this. I ranted for who would in front of whatever minister was standing up in estimates for an entire spring session. Thankfully, they've, uh, you know, Minister Rankin has now changed that. There's still 140 of those, um, of those agreements. And basically, you know, when the NDP was in opposition, they called those agreements take it or leave it agreements, meaning they're signed under duress. We're, you know, the Crown is going to log this area. If you want cash, sign this agreement. If you want no cash... Don't sign the agreement, but the trees like are, but the trees are falling. Mm -hmm. So, and so what is a, what is a chief and council supposed to do in that situation? Mm -hmm. They need healthcare, they need education, they need housing, they need all these things that, that everybody needs, you know, in, in terms of to support the basic needs of their community. Mm -hmm. How irresponsible would they be not to participate in that? How irresponsible would it be for you know, the indigenous communities that signed on with pipelines, the provincial and federal governments go into those communities. We know the conversation that they go into those communities with. This is a pipeline that will be built. And if you hold out, we are going to hold out longer. And that's essentially the tone and the context of those conversations. And anybody who denies that's not being honest. And so I think that that's it important to point out that if they say no that's not the con no it is <laughs> and it's happening it, it's happening recently it happened recently um and anybody who's a part of those conversations knows that they've been a part of those conversations but really what it is is it's this initiative is going to happen and you're either going to sign this agreement and get some cash for those programs that you need or you're going to sit back and watch us log your territory or build a pipeline through your territory. And then what happens is the government then stands up and says, 
we have X number of nations that are behind us that support this initiative. And they've signed, they've forced into signing non-disclosure agreements so they can't talk about what it was they signed or why it was they signed. Mm -hmm. So this is the way that it's been. And um, this is the reason why I think that it's important for us to recognize um, that the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act promises a very different structure than that. And when you see what has been negotiated by Blueberry First Nation, uh, Blueberry River First Nation up north and the other uh, treaty nations in the area and the, their neighbors, and uh, what we see with some of the other agreements that are starting to come is a remarkably different framework. Uh, a framework that looks at um, uh, that where indigenous leaders are able to negotiate the things that are important to them without having you know the federal and provincial government, and it requires court cases to to drag the the province and the feds kicking and screaming to the table. Um, but you know the the courts have been providing that um, uh, creating that table uh, by the decisions that they've been making. Talking about Canada a little bit more broadly, we've had the discovery of, uh, I guess we need to say suspected grave sites. I mean, we're almost positive that there's, those are grave sites, right? How many, I, I suppose, is, is the only real question. But um, can you explain some ways that that discovery has impacted the conversations that we're having around Indigenous issues and what the impact that is having on Indigenous people as far as sort of resurfacing past traumas and... Hmm. Yeah, big question. I mean, I think... So, as I said on... I think it was... What was it? May 31st or May 20... Whatever that timeline was a few years ago. Was it... These are stories that residential school and day school survivors have long known about. Right. It's um, not a shock to... to no, this has not been a surprise. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I kind of look back through time at these kind of interesting moments where, uh, what is known becomes kind of understood across kind of the rest of society. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think I don't know more was that moment was one of those moments where it, it, the conversation went from kind of one thing to a different thing. Um, and and I think uh, what the Tkamlitsuskwep people, um, when they have made the announcement, kind of stark announcement about what they found with ground penetrating radar, uh, kind of put it in a context that was undeniable for people. Mm -hmm. um, our society was fragile at that time because of. Uh, know everything else that was going on as well and so you know I, I think it caught a lot of people off guard and there was a lot of people in kind of a vulnerable state and they certainly broader society kind of engaged what the truth and reconciliation commission and marie sinclair and his colleagues were t were talking about you know in that report it's it's all there in that report mm -hmm. they just hadn't done the, the the communities with these residential schools, these institutes, just horrific institutions in them, hadn't done the the technical work to kind of back up what the witnesses were saying. And now that's happening. It's happening in Williams Lake. It's happening in 
in uh, Alberni, Port Alberni. It's happening in Cooper Island. It's happening in Kamloops and in communities right across the country. So, you know, I think that there is um, a better understanding of exactly what those schools were about, those institutions were about. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's important to recognize that, you know, day schools were often viewed as better. They weren't the only reason why you might be able to consider them better is because the students got to go home at the end of the day, but it was the same people you know, these religious institutions delivering the same kind of so-called education and um, they were horrific too. And so the, but the, the, those institutions were a tool and the government was very forthright about it. It was to separate the Indian from the child. And uh, really what that was about was it was about um, getting rid of the Indian problem. Right. And so, um, stripping people of that identity. Yeah, that's right. Um, and one of the ways that Canada was not going to have to be responsible for ignoring the Royal Proclamation and kind of the, the law was if they didn't have the Indians to be there to, to hold them accountable for it. Well, what they didn't count on was that the people who had survived on this lands and on these territories since time immemorial through, you know, winters and summers were resilient. They were incredibly resilient. And here we are today, you know, thriving and, and with growing communities and um, our cultures preserved and, and in many cases thriving um, and with a lot to teach people. And so I, I feel somewhat fortunate in being a being an elected representative in British Columbia. We, in many respects, are way further ahead all of the other provinces uh, in this country with respect to understanding and um, addressing the the part of you know the the part of the colonial history and the colonial story that happened here in British Columbia. We also are, you know, the most um, ecologically diverse, the most, um, from a cultural perspective, the most culturally diverse, there's more languages and more cultures, indigenous languages and cultures here in BC than, than maybe even the rest of Canada combined. There, there is a lot of diversity here. And, and this isn't to undermine the other cultures. This is just to say that British Columbia has 30 something linguistic, distinct linguistic groups. We've got scenarios in this province where, you know, the, the languages of neighboring nations are like English and Cantonese. Like that's how similar they are, right? right. So remar a remarkable diversity in, in our province. And so um, we were really at the forefront. We've been at the forefront in BC. Uh, the uh, Union of BC Indian Chiefs and the, the history through the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the court cases are BC court cases. And uh, we've really been leading the um uh the work in order to kind of expose what that policy was what it did and what its intentions were and um the residential schools the day schools were the key tool that were used by the crown governments uh to to try to address the problems as they saw it mm -hmm. uh and it was horrific you know there's stories of 
of kids in day school and then all of a sudden they're gone. They got sent to residential school and then they never come back to the community. And, and each and every time those stories are told, uh, the survivors have to go through it again. And um, there's intergenerational survivors that uh, who have been dealing with and trying to address in their own way the impacts of of those institutions on their parents and grandparents the behaviors that kind of got passed down the the really really challenging situations that those children came back to in the communities and the, the stuff that they came back with each and every time that we have these conversations it reopens you know, unfortunately it reopens wounds on on the other hand it's in order for us to be able to address it, we have to be we have to speak it. We have to be able to say it, mm-hmm. and people have to understand it. And I think that for the for the you know a number of years after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came out, all of the information was there, and nobody believed it. And then what happened first at Kamloops and then around was that there was um, for the first time since that information came out publicly. A public acceptance of it, and uh, and we saw shrines, you know, being set up on the steps of the legislature. Um, you know, uh, Orange Shirt Day has taken a a, a remarkably different kind of um, tone. It's it's gone from being something that, you know, kind of voluntarily is done to to now part of um, part of Canadian culture in the sense that September 30th is Orange Shirt Day. It's a day of truth and reconciliation. It's a day where we turn and face of that evil history of our of our governance mm-hmm. and we've noticed that uh here at the flag shop as well because we sell um every child matters flags buttons things like that and all the proceeds go to um indigenous organizations uh because you know we recognize you don't want to be profiting off of such a tragedy yeah. but um the the amount of people that are looking to have a flag or, or something to show that they um I, I guess, support Indigenous people, they want to see change. And also on Canada Day, the sort of switch from flying Canadian flags to flying um, Every Child Matters flags, that's been a huge shift as well. And, and it's interesting, I don't know if it's related or if it's coincidence, but seeing what the Canadian flag has been used for since, right? There's there's a very different perception of what the Canadian flag is, uh, or that perception has changed significantly over the last couple of years. So that, well, that's, I've noticed it. Yeah. Yeah, no, and symbolism is powerful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it's powerful. It's, you know, um, the source of power in our legislature is is maintained through symbols, the mace and, you know, the black rod and, you know, the, the symbols of, of power that um, kind of is in the legislature. Mm-hmm. You know, you watch the mace, it moves up and down, up and down, up and down, depending on what's going on, where the speaker is, if the speaker's in the chair, the speaker's not in the chair. The mace is in different places. It nothing gets started unless that's there. So, yeah, no these these are powerful these are powerful symbols, and they become to mean a lot more than than maybe just you know the the piece of nylon that they're that they're flying on. But um, yeah, I, I think you know since what was it uh, this time last year, the Canadian flag, the meaning of the Canadian flag has changed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it has. It would be. Uh, it's important to acknowledge that, and I think the um, the the orange shirt and the, that symbolism 
around that. We have, you know, Pink Shirt Day for anti-bullying. You know, these would become powerful symbols uh, in our society. And uh, certainly, you know, Orange Shirt Day, I remember having a couple of teachers uh, approach me and say, Adam, there's no curriculum for Orange Shirt Day. They expect us, people who did not experience residential schools, who know nobody who went to residential school directly, mm -hmm. um, have no experience of it our, ourselves. We're not taught it, learn nothing about it, to create a curriculum for our students about Orange Shirt Day. Mm -hmm. You know, and and, and um, they did their best. Like they'd been doing their best to to try to tell a story about residential schools to elementary schools students mm -hmm. and middle school students. And, you know, as they get older, I think the story becomes more and more full in, in, ter in terms of what happened. But I think that it's imp important not to underestimate what the impact of that's going to be. The This generation of students that's going through our school system right now that has been exposed to information about our residential schools, those institutions, that history, since kindergarten all the way through to grade 12, is going to have a remarkably different version of this country than the one that I and probably you and, you know, our peers grew up with, grew up knowing. You know, they, it is not the same. There's nothing similar about it. No, I mean, so, I think about when I was in elementary school, we went to a longhouse in, uh, in Squamish uh, and... That was not something that was regularly planned. Um, our teacher made the decision to bring the class there, but I don't think other classes were doing that. And I learned so much from that trip about, um, you know, how to weave with cedar and uh, how to make bannock and, and about uh, the culture. And the only thing I found that was more impactful as far as uh, learning what it uh, the struggles that Indigenous people have gone through, what it means to be Indigenous, has been to go to the Coquitlam uh, First Nation the, on the reserve. They have an event every year for uh, National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. And that was eye-opening because there were people there who had actually been through the residential school system and were able to speak mm. to what that was like. And it was an extremely emotional event, but I feel like I learned a lot. And uh, it was also nice to see that there were... I think 200 people that showed up, hmm. which is maybe 20 times more than previous years. So something in the community clicked and people went, I want to know more mm -hmm. about this. Um, people, I guess, recognizing that we don't, we don't know enough and we need to learn more to be better allies. Yeah, I think, um, I think that there's been, there, there has been a remarkable change. I, I last year, sorry, not last year, the year before last, the first, National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, the first September 3rd, the one that uh, Justin Trudeau surfed, mm -hmm. um, that first one. Right. Um, I was busy. Like I was going from event to event, you know, talking to businesses, you know, talking to, and the second one, um, I got a lot of invitations, but I decided, you know, that I was going to spend some time with my dad. And, um, so we kind of went back to the land. We went out fishing and I spent it with my dad and my nephew. And um, it was a beautiful day. It was the first day that my, my, it was my nephew's 
first salmon that he caught was that day with his grandpa. And there they were, the two of them, two generations fishing like they should have been doing. Like that's what we should be doing is out in September. We should out be, be out fishing. Mm-hmm. And um, I decided this time around that this was going to be a day that I spent with someone who'd survived all that horror. Uh, and I wasn't, you know, I, I spend most of my days talking about the experiences, talking, you know, standing up and doing speeches, going on the air, talking about it, doing podcasts like this and, and sharing truth and reconciliation day in 2022 was going to be about just pausing, reflecting and taking time. So, you know, I, I think, um, each in their own way, we, we all have a, we all have a role in terms of what we know and sharing it. Uh, but that was a, that was a pretty cool, uh, day that day. And to see, uh, my, I think he's eight or nine years old, reel in his first salmon and his, you know, his eyes. And every time he tells a story, the fish gets bigger, you know, and uh, the fight gets longer and yeah, it's, uh, he's already learning how to, to tell stories, to tell fish stories. So that's good, but that's the way it should be. And, and the experience that his grandpa had showing him how to do that and, you know, um, it's, those are important moments. So, yeah, I'm glad you were able to have that before we start wrapping things up. Is there anything that we haven't touched on yet that you think is really important for our audience to be aware of? Well, I think that it's, that it's important to, to recognize that, uh, we're really at a beginning of what is a lifelong journey now for us as an, as a nation and as a province, as communities. We've tried for more than a century to separate, to divide, to divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. And what we've learned from that, I think, collectively, is that we are lesser by doing that. Like I was saying earlier about diversity, we are greater when we are inclusive. We are greater when we are open to learning from culture and, and from um, the people who've been successful on these lands and waters mm-hmm. for thousands of years. They've got a lot to teach us. And I think, you know, the process of decolonization is a process that involves Indigenous people, but it's not an Indigenous people uh, exercise. It is an exercise in how our governance structures have been established, the outcomes that they're intended to produce. And, you know, I think decolonization, you know, as, as much as watching resources be extracted in an unsustainable way and the profits being taken, you know, out of this province, that's an experience that is as old as the Hudson's Bay Company. Our first governor in this province, it's important that British Columbians understand, our first governor was not a politician, he was a corporate man. (laughs) And he was installed to do one thing, and that was to extract resources and make money off of it. And so, you know, when we see multinational corporations coming into British Columbia extracting profits, shuttering mills, um, sending the profits you know, out, of, out of the province, uh, not supporting the people that they're um, laying off and, and who are losing their jobs, not supporting those communities that they've benefited from. That's not a new phenomenon. That's a phenomenon that is uh, in, you know, embedded in our colonial mindset. So decolonization is saying, how is it that we create a system of government that benefits 
the people and the lands and all of the species, all that beautiful diversity that we have in this province. How do we create a system of governments that, governments that honors that? Mm -hmm. We have a system of governance that pillages it right now. And that has been by design. Uh, the, the clear cutting of trees has never been a sustainable practice, but it's never been about the landscape. It's never been about the watershed. It's never been about the ecosystem. It's always been about how much fiber can we rip out of the ground and how quickly can we do it? And then when there's no more fiber there, how quickly can we abandon that place? And, and that's when, so for me, decolonization, indigenous people have a lot to say about it. And they, and we have a lot to learn from how we can live on the landscape with a decolonized minds, mindset, understanding that those trees and those fish and those whales and all of the species that have to live on that landscape are part of a biodiversity and a part of an ecosystem health that we're part of. And that they, you know, from the Satanich worldview, those are our relatives. And if we started to adopt that kind of mindset, now we're starting to relate to them in a different way. It's not just about the money that we can make off of it, but it's how would you treat them if they were your relatives, mm -hmm. right? And well, relatives that you like. <laughs> how would you treat them if they were your relatives, right? And um, you wouldn't be eviscerating them. You wouldn't be, you know, destroying them and, and, not, and not having any kind of emotional response from it like we're doing right now. And, you know, that is basically the, the resource extraction mentality that this province was founded on and is it still at the core. And so when I stand up in the legislature and say, you know, we are a resource colony, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about us feeling sorry for companies that posted nine and a half billion dollars in profits. Shell, you know, at the, at the center of the LNG story up north in BC, all of the billions of dollars that tax and rate payers in this province have given to these multinational corporations, just handouts, just here you go, mm -hmm. just to have our money. Um, and then they have the gall to post billion dollar quarterly profits, mm -hmm. right? Um, this is a, a, a type of, you know, and we, and we have, you know, the, the two, the, the governing party right now, the BC NDP, we have the former governing party, the BC Liberals, who claim to be free enterprise. That's the most expensive form of enterprise I've ever seen in my entire life. There's nothing free about it. It's yeah. corporate welfare. And, and that corporate welfare is actually enshrined in a colonial mindset. And so decolonization um, is really about creating a governance structure that where those benefits, where the relationship is one that is serves the the purpose locally and regionally and provincially, um, and you know I, I think that um, BC again is at the forefront of it, and in the you know in the coming work through this spring and and uh, in the legislature you're going to see me talking a lot more about how all of the interconnections, interconnectivity, the biodiversity, the ecosystem health is a culmination of work that we've been doing in the legislature, but it's part of the necessary transition that we need to make from, you know, where we have resource extraction, we have resource protection, you know, parks, 
we have in conservation, right? This conservation mentality where we have to conserve some so that we don't destroy it all. There's some that we've conserved. Uh, to restoration, which is actually the really exciting part of this, that Indigenous people who have been living on the landscapes are going to be really, really critical and key teachers for us to say, how do we restore these ecosystems back so that they are functioning so that they are so that we're honoring all of the diversity of species that live there but so that then we can live in a resilient place that then you know isn't uh, we're not suffering from the wild swings of of weather that we're experiencing and that you know when the rains come the the landslides don't follow right when the you know when when the heat comes you know, we've been taking care of our forests. So there's, so yeah, there's going to be wildfires, but they're not devastating. So that's the work that we have ahead of us. Right. And when you're talking about that, uh, you're talking about natural climate solutions as opposed to engineered climate solutions. Because this um, is a conversation that came up on our climate um, podcast. You, you know, Divyani Singh was yeah. one of our guests. So uh, there was this debate around, do we do, do we need natural climate solutions or engineered climate, climate solutions? And, uh, it sounds uh, like that might be where we're. I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big f- fan of, you know, n- nature. N- nature has the answers for us. You know, we've been kind of taking pieces out and seeing how does it work. You know, it's kind of like Jenga, right? Like you take a piece out and like, does that still stand? Mm-hmm. Does it still stand? Eventually, you've got this very fragile structure that at any moment could just fully collapse. And so the restoration economy or the, the way I see it is you're taking those blocks and you're putting it back, them back in mm-hmm. and you're, and um, so in some cases you're not actually putting them back in, you're just leaving it alone and, and letting it. So like a wetland, for example, you can keep draining and keep draining and keep draining a wetland. But if you walk away from it, the wetland returns over time, right? The mm-hmm. nature starts to rebuild itself. And so you know, I, I, I'm not sure what language that I want to use for it other than the fact that um, these landscapes will tell their own story. And, um, I, and I think that the, the indigenous knowledge keepers that, that are in our communities today uh, will, will let you know which pieces are okay to be put back in. Um, and, you know, I, I just think that um, we need to move away in this province from an economy that's basically featuring and founded on death and uh, move it towards an economy that is celebrating and featuring life. Mm-hmm. And that is really kind of the reflection of the economy that my Coast Salish ancestors, my Satanich ancestors, it wasn't, wealth was not how much I could hoard. Wealth was what I could... In, leave for the next generation as an inheritance. So as a fisherman, I've got fish on, I've got salmon on my sweater. As a fisherman, if I went and cleaned out that fishing location that my family owned and harvested all the salmon there, I would ruin it for four years down the road. And if I did that year over year over year, I would make that that fishing location not a useful place to go and fish anymore. And And so it might make me wealthy, but it will leave my family and my rel- and my descendants destitute. And that's not a very smart way to, to manage a community. It's not a very smart way to manage a province. That's frankly how we've been managing it. 
what we sounds kind of like capitalism. A little bit. So what we need to be doing is leaving an inheritance for our for our children and grandchildren uh, that's that's worth having that they can continue to benefit from year over year and decade over decade. Uh, and that means we're going to have to restore those those ecosystems. Uh, in some cases, allow those ecosystems to restore themselves. In some cases, we're going to have to go into like clear cuts and plant forests, not tree farms, forests, mm -hmm. which, you know, m multiple different um, uh, species. And then, and then what starts to happen, like, like we've seen with the, uh, the straight Salish um, clam gardens, you, you start to grow an, a nursery for clams and all of a sudden a pile of other species start to show up mm -hmm. and start to benefit from that work that you're doing completely separate from the work that you're doing, mm -hmm. but you're creating ecosystems for them as well. And they thrive and then they create ecosystems for other species that thrive. So it's recognizing that we're part of this thing. We're not separate from it. Right. We've had this mindset that we are, that it's all here for us to benefit from and use. And it's all about us. Mm -hmm. um, and once we can put ourselves in the right place and recognize this world wasn't created for us, we are a beneficiary of a great world. Um, another animal in we, this. we just have to be part of it mm -hmm. and humble ourselves a little bit in that in that context. Mm -hmm. What we usually like to do to end our podcast is give the audience a sense of what they can do to to help. So in this case, it could be what can our listeners do to help further reconciliation, to um, help solve what uh, various different indigenous issues. That's obviously the topic. Um, what would your advice to our listeners be if they're looking for ways to get involved and to give back? Encourage uh, your elected officials, the, the people that are making decisions, encourage them to be um, continuing to walk the path of reconciliation in a good way. Uh, don't ever assume that there's going to be an end to this. This is, a, this is a process that we've started and it's one that we will be walking together forever. Uh, and it's a thing to celebrate. Uh, I think uh, in some cases, um, well, I'll just say this. My dad is always, whenever we've, whenever we've participated in or attended events in our communities, um, my dad has always encouraged us to ask fewer questions and to watch much closer. And so you can learn a lot by just watching. And uh, you're going to have a lot of questions and you're going to want to you're going to want to know uh, about what's going on, but the best way for you to find out what's going on is just to watch and watch very, very closely. So when you go to an event, pay close attention to what's happening. When, when they're paying witnesses, what are they doing? Why are they doing that? Um, it'll, the, the picture and, and the, the process will become clear over time if you're paying close attention. And then I think the final thing that I'd just say to this is that there are so many books now, uh, on these, on these topics. And I've, I've started a book club, um, with my dad and it's a, it's a great place for us just to have a conversation about, uh, about the issues that are raised in these books. So we just finished reading Jody Wilson's, uh, Jody Wilson Raybould's book, uh, Indian in the Cabinet. We're moving on to our next one. We've, we've read Art Manuel's book and we've read, um, Thomas King's book and, you know, we're going to, we're going to keep going. I think Clarence Louis' book is coming up, right? So read these books that are, that are out there now. You can go into a bookstore and almost every bookstore has got a section of indigenous authors. Get a better understanding of what, 
our uh, in indigenous leaders and, and kind of thought leaders are thinking and uh, what they're putting out there. Cause I, cause you know, you're not, it's not like you're going to find that everyone's in, in wild agreement with each other. You're going to find that there's a diversity that, you know, and there's going to be people that, you know, don't agree with much of what I've said today. That's fine. That's great. You know, we are, uh, we, we've got a, a wide, diverse set of beliefs and, and values. Um, but they do come back down to, I think, uh, some core structural beliefs about living in a good way on this, on the, the lands and the waters, having good relationships with our relatives, uh, all of the other species that are out there. And so I, I would just say, you know, be careful about how you're living and, um, and, read as many of the of the authors as you can to to gain an understanding of of uh who indigenous people are and and um and their principles and values wonderful that was such a fantastic way of wrapping things up uh thank you so much for being a guest today i always love hearing your perspectives especially when it's a subject that you're passionate about this has been a social justice podcast our topic today was indigenous issues i'm your host nicholas sperling and I was joined today by Adam Olson. Cool. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book.